0: Hi, everyone. Thank you for coming to the second panel of the day. My name is Malou and I'm a foreign policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Um, just as a housekeeping note, someone left their smart trip card uh, somewhere in the audience. So if you'd like to pick it up, if you lost it, it's upstairs. And also, please turn off your cell phones. Just don't put them on silent, only because it interferes with the microphone and the PA system. Uh, great. Thank you so much. And uh, the structure of this panel will be fairly simple. It'll start with a discussion among the panelists, and then it'll open up to Q&A. Our panel of experts represents a variety of perspectives, not just about the war in Afghanistan, but also about the conservative stance on war and nation building more generally. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I am not a conservative. Uh, However, because I examine US foreign policy from a classical liberal perspective, I do sympathize with the modern, or at least the traditional conservative notions uh, that have a sort of an aversion to America's military impulse. And uh, as you'll hear shortly, I think some on the panel actually share that view. Now, because we have distributed full biographies of all the panelists to the conference attendees, I will just offer a brief introduction and then get started with our discussion. From your left to right, we have uh, Tony Blankley, columnist with The Washington Times, now Executive Vice President for Edelman Public Relations. Don Devine, editor of Conservative Battleline and former director of the Office of Personnel Management. Mackenzie Eaglin. Research fellow for National Security Studies at the Heritage Foundation and policy expert on military budgeting and strategic planning. And Diana West, nationally syndicated columnist and regular contributor to the Washington Examiner. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming. Thank you, all of you, for being here. So let us just turn to the first question. We'll just go down the row. Uh, So, panel, the United States has been in Afghanistan for a little over eight years. Uh, Given that country's widespread corruption, pervasive poverty and illiteracy, and the dysfunction of the international alliance. What, for you, constitutes success, and what pressure should we be willing to pay for it?
1: Well, I, I come to Afghanistan on a specifically uh, distinctive basis. I, I look at who our commander-in-chief is, uh, and I do not have confidence in his intention to pursue success. So, although I'm normally supportive of engaging in using whatever we need to, somewhere in the zone of Dana Rohrabacher's views, although a little different, I believe in engagement. But and I think we have interests to protect there. But I don't believe that the I don't believe that the resources are going to be applied. I think he said he wants to get out in 18 months, uh, and I don't want to see any of our troops uh, killed to cover a politician's backside. Mm-hmm. So that's a different question. That, uh, given the commander in chief we're going to have for at least another three years, mm-hmm. uh, my choice would be probably the Biden solution, which is to uh, to in- disengage as quickly as we can with maintaining some minimal supportive presence. Because uh, I can't ask anyone to, to die for an exit strategy.
2: Mm-hmm. Success was leaving three or four years ago. Uh, what do you do now? Uh, what Tony says is the only possible thing. I mean, you've got to turn it over to local, and that's been the whole problem there. They can't decide that you're going to have central government control you're going to turn it over to the community. They're still arguing it this week. Uh, um, but they've got to make a decision uh, uh, one way or the other, and I think the only way we're going to get out is if we hand it let the local forces take it over. There's no way you can run that country centrally out of Kabul. Nobody's ever been able to do it. Nobody ever will.
3: I believe success is an Afghanistan that can defend itself, purely and simple. But it is not necessarily the elimination of all violence in the country. I, I've fallen the sort of general U.S. military camp here where you know, diminishing violence levels and, of course, decreasing the insurgency and the influence of the Taliban is important But it would be unrealistic for the U.S. to expect that we could ever see this wholly peaceful, um, flowering, prosperous nation, and I don't think that is our goal. Again, an Afghanistan that could defend itself, and for all the requisite reasons therein for what our interests in that are, is, I think, a modest and reasonable and achievable goal.
4: I would say before we discuss what success in Afghanistan would look like, there's a need to assess whether success in Afghanistan is in our national security interest. Um, I think that the question implies that there is something for us to win in Afghanistan. And I'm firmly of the belief that there is not, that Afghanistan is really on the wrong side of our line in the sand if, there, if we are going to draw one in the, uh, this period of resurgent jihad, which has not been mentioned in, in the question. That's also a big problem in Afghanistan. And uh, there needs to be a real reassessment of American goals and interests. I think, oh,
1: absolutely. let me just respond because the purpose has shifted. I mean, initially, after 9 after 11, the purpose was essentially a punitive uh, incursion to punish the regime that hit us. And I can't imagine that, that we wouldn't have done that. And we did that. We, 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 we kicked the regime out. Then we stayed. And now, the question is what interest do we have and we we have unfortunately two different interests that i don 't think we're capable under the current regime here in washington of, of, of vindicating but one is that if we turn tail and run and i'm i'm agreeing we sort of have to because of our current regime here, but we are going to pay a price because it'll be a Claimed as a as a triumph by jihadis, that first they kicked out the Soviets and then they kicked out the Americans. It will add to recruiting, to uh, and and increase the, the radical Islamic threat to us. Over, the, I think that's a price we're going to have to pay because I don't think our current government's going to do. Anything useful. And then the other piece is that with the question of Pakistan degrading as, as a governing entity, uh, do we have some new function there to be supportive uh, of which Afghanistan is only a side to that issue but I don't think that we're bringing the resources to, to bear on, on that and I think there are other solutions. So I think we do pay a price for leaving. They're not the prices that we were, the things we were seeking to accomplish when we got there. I think
2: that's well, I don't, one thing, I don't think the regime is the problem. I don't. I think the last regime was the problem. Uh, this guy's just picking up, as, as Rohrbacher said. I mean, uh, the problem... And Bush had already... Bush kept the troop level down there, which he kept them halfway in between. Right. I great. mean, a, a, this left us with neither option. Um, but I'd like to ask McKenzie, what do you mean by security of Afghanistan?
3: In that's, that you said that's or just
2: y- yeah. What does that regions? mean? Uh, does it mean the Kabul is running the country? I mean, what does it mean that Afghanistan is running itself, or whatever term you that
3: use? That it's capable of defending itself.
2: Defending from whom? Nobody's attacking Afghanistan.
3: Even from internal threats, which are these days are just part and parcel with the threats from emanating from the region. It's everything has bled over so much, somewhat to Tony's point, including Pakistan as well as other regional, Al-Qaeda is a globally inspired insurgency. So it's certainly, leadership is in the region, in the Fatah, in Pakistan as well. Um, They've linked up with the Taliban, but it's not exclusive to Afghanistan. So a country that can defend itself certainly requires some elements of governance and um, reconstruction. The governance pieces are certainly debatable. I don't know that a strong central government is necessarily achievable in a realistic time frame, Uh, but then again in a tribal nation like Afghanistan, I traveled there two years ago, uh, what we've seen, for example, in specific regions and areas is that success on a village or mountain basis or community basis is achievable. And if you put the Afghan National Security Forces, various elements they're in, including Border Patrol, in charge of this, and they're in charge of basically defeating four of the threats that Afghanistan does face today right now, not the U.S. or coalition forces, although we're certainly a partner in that effort, then they can help do things like achieve local but who security, is they? root the, out corruption.
2: The, the, who? The National Army? Who, who is doing all this? The uh, Army,
3: the police force, the Border Patrol. And the, then the problem locally, is the
2: army and the local uh, militias are fighting each other. In I mean, some places. I mean, and Afghanistan lives to fight each other. If you did what I think is the ideal, which is decentralizing it, you're not going to have peace. They're all going to be fighting with each other. You know, it may not be big bombs in the air, but they're going to be fighting each other. So it's, it seems to me, peace within Afghanistan cannot be the goal.
3: Well, don't I didn't actually, say that. I said a reduction in the level of hostility but not in an elimination of it. Well, Mackenzie McKinsey and on. Uh, doesn't Diana actually brings up this good point
0: in the sense that what discernible US interest does the United States have in sort of trying
4: to uh, settle disputes amongst different tribes in Afghanistan? I mean well, just to... well, I would say none, but I would say that does not mean there is not an overriding US interest in the region which is the Pakistani nuclear mm-hmm. capability. And if America does not have a program, a plan to completely neutralize that capability as needed, then we are truly in trouble. But in terms of uh, making peace among various tribes, we have seen this already falling apart. I mean, it would be funny. It would be Keystone Cop time if it weren't so tragic. Mm -hmm. We saw just this past week a tribal... um, a tribal agreement of 400,000 Oh, the tribe. Yes, they fell apart because they started fighting again. But you wonder what happened to the million dollars that was supposed to have kept the tribal elders keeping hold of the 400,000 tribal members. I mean, that, you know, down the drain again. This is just one small instance. But, no, there is no overriding American interest in making peace among tribes in Afghanistan. Afghanistan is not an overriding American interest. The Pakistani nukes, that is our overriding interest in that area. And as far as Tony's point about suffering for a retreat, I would say it depends how that retreat is couched, how that retreat is prepared. It is not to say that threats may not come from Afghanistan or come from the same region. They can be addressed in ways that does not require the logistical nightmare of basing hundreds of thousands of Americans and allied forces in Afghanistan, which of course is a nightmare as a landlocked country. Um, we're seeing that as a big problem getting the new troops that the president's ordered going in. The theory that has not been tested, the theory that makes the most sense to me, is something uh, often known in military parlance as the lily pad strategy, which is essentially basing um, American firepower either in friendly bases already existing, in friendly nations, or off-carrier groups, which can command as much firepower as you know some nations put together their military resources. So If you stay on, essentially, an offensive stance and say, you know, not taking, not taking attacks, further attacks, not taking further aggressions as they affect us, then I don't think you are going to be perceived as retreating. You're going to be perceived as being, aha, smart, no longer feeding. No, look, I mean,
1: you know, people can smell a retreat. And, and and if we're taking a powder, we're taking a powder, and we ought to understand that the that, that jihadis around the world are gonna sense we they won and we lost on this round. I mean
4: I would say we shouldn't delude ourselves into thinking
1: and when we stand off, and maybe we have to do, I say that may be the the, 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 the default position we gotta go to. But the problem is if you don't have intelligence in the country, then you're just sitting there and you end up sort of being isolated little units you have to defend, whether it, wherever it is, and you spend a lot of money and time defending your force and you don't have much effect in country, So the truth is, it's not much of a strategy to, to, to sit off in little enclaves and and pretend that you're having an impact in, in a country. Uh, the reality is that, that there's been this absurd mission creep in Afghanistan from the initial cause, which was obvious, to now we're sort of stuck there and trying to figure out... And I think you know it's, it's a loss either way that we stay and we lose men, or we or we and we leave and we lose face. And there's a price to pay for losing face. But I'd rather at this point lose face than men. I mean, that's
0: right. Right. I mean, I think that overall, I mean, the notion that we'll look weak in a when we do withdraw or when we do scale down our presence, I do think that's legitimate. I do sympathize with that notion. However, I think people who do make that argument, they sort of vastly oversimplify the fact that we do look weak the longer we stay and the fact that our military does appear bogged down, our mission and our strategy appears aimless. We are also feeding recruits to the indigenous Pakistani Taliban on the opposite side of the border that's destabilizing Pakistan. So I guess a a more pointed question I should have asked is what for you constitutes failure and when should policymakers essentially come to the conclusion that despite all of our efforts that really this mission is just not working?
1: This mission is, is on the brink of failure and it will fail. I think. Uh, as Dana said in the previous one, when Reagan recognized that the Beirut mission was a failure and he cut his losses, you don't like to admit failure, but look, I understand that when McChrystal's memo to, to the president, before the president made his decision, that the language, as it's been described to me in the uncleansed version, was that if we're fully resourced, uh, men and materiel, and if the U.S. government in all its different branches coordinates much better than it has been, then in five to seven years we have a better-than-even chance of succeeding at, allowing, at establishing a government to be able to assert its sovereignty in most of the country. That was the best-case scenario that McChrystal gave to the president, uh, better-than-even. That's basically a crapshoot if we have more resources and men and do better than we're likely to be able to do over a longer period of time than the president or probably the Americans want to give to it. So it's very hard to see success happen even with a better strategy and and more resources, because McChrystal was pretty brutal. Better than even is not much for the generals. Usually they say, if you give us this, we'll get the job done. They didn't say that this time. They said better than even, which is like the lowest level of justification for doing anything.
2: You look at the one that the newspapers got a hold of. uh, I mean, mean, uh, you don't need any more than that. I mean, it was realistic, the problems, and he gives very little hope yeah, for
1: success, exactly. even if he gets what yeah, he wants. Yeah, I mean that's the point. I mean, I mean it, it, that was a very discouraging it document. It was an and,
2: incredible thing. I mean, when I read that, you understand what the problem was. And, and the military understands this and has understood it from the beginning. You know, this, this left-wing nonsense of blaming the military for wanting to get in. It. It's just nonsense. They didn't want to get in. They were reluctant to it. I mean, the whole fight is a, a great story here. The fight between uh, the Washington Post thing uh, about uh, three or four weeks ago did a good inside thing. It's The the real fight over there is between the State Department and the Department of Defense. The Department of Defense wants to localize it a, a, and turn over the, the fighting war to the local. The State Department wants to build up the, the national... Uh, uh, central power, they're fighting to this
1: very minute on what they're doing it, and they have no solution for it. Yeah, look At, this, at I mean, this point, it's only anecdotal, but my sense, just talking with senior people in, in, in the Army and the Marines, is that they are not happy campers. They don't think that this is a project that they're, that they're likely to be able to use their magnificent abilities to, to right. accomplish much. And I had one four-star who I'd written a series of columns last fall basically elaborating on what I just uttered this morning, and saying, keep it up, which sort of surprised me. Four-star army.
4: Well, I mean, oh, well, I was just going to say, I don't know that, that I would break down the defense versus state um, positions quite that way just based on um, a read of the top brass, who seem deeply committed to the whole notions of counterinsurgency, in i.e., nation-building. Um, I think that there is a messianic zeal on the part of people uh, as far as his statements go, including General McChrystal, um, including many of the top command. uh, You know, you read about, uh, you actually hear the words hearts and minds, winning hearts and minds coming out of one-star generals. Um, They seem very much committed to this notion of nation building, uh, to this notion of, of rules of engagement that put our troops at risk. General McChrystal, I don't know how many times he has made the case that it is much more important to protect the Afghan people than our own troops um, in, in orders, in interviews. I mean, this has been a constant, constant refrain. The emphasis on eliminating all civilian casualties as though that will change the Afghan attitudes toward our um, presence. These kinds of ideas, I think, have deeply... Uh, to my mind, twisted the United States military, and I think they're the ideas that have saturated at the very highest levels of command, and I think that that is one of our big problems. You
1: talk about those rules of engagement, and I understand, I I agree with you, and I disagree. I I don't think we're going to win hearts and minds by killing a few less people inadvertently, but but I I understand the theory that, that he's arguing. You know, it may it may be wrong, but I it, I understand that why well, I he, why understand he's making it. it. But <laughs> it wrong. is a truly repulsive instruction to give to your troops. Uh, and if you know young men and, and and some young women in 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 the line, to, to tell them as they now have to do, they have to wait until they're shot at. That if that if the sniper is is in in the building where there are civilians, you've got to wait and see if you get killed first before you get to. Re- fire. To ask our troops to go into circumstances like that, even if that strategy somehow makes sense, I don't know how we tell our, our, our young men to, to, to do that. And if you've got a son or if you've got friends or you meet these young guys and, and, and young women now, and, and they're so willing to, to, to do their duty for the country, and then you tell them, go in there and be shot, because our strategy is we're trying to convince the, the people who don't want us there that we're not so bad? I mean, it's...
4: it's a it, it is But the honest. problem is there's
1: two
2: different levels of this. I mean, at the, at the level of strategy, what they're supposed to be doing, the military is very clear. Statements from uh, men here, which I, I can't quote, but the military doesn't want to do this. But once the military is thrown into doing it, they have no choice except to follow that and to use that uh, terminology. But that isn't what they want to do. Army generals kill people. That's their job, not to do this. But once they're put into that situation and are forced to do it, they have to do it.
3: The defense and security element of U.S. strategy in Afghanistan flows from the president's determining our vital national interests there. And this is remarkably bipartisan from this president and the previous president. They both clearly outlined what they believe are our vital national interests, not our important or nice-to-have national interests, that it's critical to the protection and safety of the American people for a variety of reasons, including terrorism, launching of attacks, regional security, Pakistan's stability, et cetera. Uh, so so the security piece really flows from foreign policy debates. And so we can disagree over the foreign policy angle here, but not necessarily... Well, what, what is the
1: secu- what is the vital interest that the current president of the United States ha- sees there that can be resolved within 18 months of us going in, the surge?
2: Well, that... Or I will add, what does the former president... Well, look, uh, look, if, look, by not putting uh, any troops so in we, there to do anything.
1: Because well, uh, this is the one who's carrying our policy right now. I mean, we... But, I mean what, It's what,
3: schizophrenic. That's, I can't that, defend the timetable.
1: I, I truly I mean, I mean, you can't have a vital interest with an exit strategy that's going to be completed in 18 months. That's the whole point. If you have a vital interest, it's vital, which means all the resources you know, have, must be applied to keep it. So when he says he's and publicly, that, and, and, and I'm told our generals believe that's one of the reasons that some of their strategies, they're trying to get as much done as they can as quickly as possible because they know that they're going to be pulled out. That's inconsistent with the whole yes. concept of a vital strategy. Really? I don't know how you can say we have a continuity of vital strateg- strategic interest when we have a president who says we're getting out in, in 18 months. But
2: we also have a Secretary of Defense that said very clearly, well, we're not really only there for 18 months. Yeah. They have walked it he back. Says, no, we, I mean, the day that the president announces that, that, the same day they the have, Secretary of Defense was on the Hill saying made- that we're... And it's a flexible And the, ne- and, date. And the, and there- the next
1: day, the, sec- the, the president's press secretary was asked which is it, and he went to the president and came back and said, and the, said the president still intends to, that that eighteen months is, is a real time. So they're maintaining at best uh, an am- a strategic ambiguity as to our strategy.
0: How much of this is sort of a bait and switch? I mean, we have the president coming out and saying that we want to implement counterinsurgency, but I'm sure as you all are familiar with the U.S. Marine Corps counterinsurgency field manual, uh, M-324. Essentially, you're going to have to commit large numbers of troops, possibly 200,000 in the South alone, for 12 to 14 years. You have have to have enormous political will in in the homeland. So, I mean, how much of this, again, I mean, are we really committed to it? Are we just paying lip service to the counterinsurgency doctrine? It's not even lip service. The the number of troops required are more than
1: we're slated to try to induce even out out of of, of the Afghani army, which, by the way, is, is a force that... Although these are the most natural fighters in the world, when they're made into a national army, they refuse to fight. I mean, they fight as tribal men, but they don't fight un- under Kabul's direction. So we've managed to turn some, one of the greatest fighting people in the world into shirkers. You know, well, it's we're, amazing.
3: We're resourcing this, uh, I would argue, the president is resourcing this with the Goldilocks option. He chose the middle road for the McChrystal uh, report, the extended one, who presented three scenarios, and to achieve the maximum chance of success. He didn't choose that option. Why wouldn't you? If it is, and I agree Goldie, with your Goldilocks point. Goldilocks
1: is a fairy tale, as is the strategy.
3: Well, 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 <laughs> well I mean, we all,
0: we all know that it'll require many, many, many more troops than we can even that can, we can even commit and time, as and you time, mentioned, and time. absolutely. And time. Uh, so, do you actually? I guess we all don't. We all disagree with the notion that we'll be out. Uh, we'll actually beginning the withdrawal by July 2011. No, uh, I don't disagree with that. Well. Listen, we all disagree with that? I, no, 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 agree that, that, that President
1: I think, Obama... I think he'd like to try to, exactly. if he possibly can, he's going to try to start with wing troops so that he has a claim to make by election cycle that he is largely honored his job of inheriting two wars and ending two wars. So what
0: kind of political criticism do you think that Barack Obama will face from Republicans and conservatives who have historically been against war and nation building? I mean, they've sort of globbed on to this notion that we shouldn't be committing more resources and time to this mission.
2: Well, they've changed their position, unfortunately. Uh, the great majority of Republicans are nation builders, in my opinion. I th- yeah, uh, I think
4: the nation building will continue past the eighteen I think
2: they will be there, will Michigan be there, well beyond yet. next year.
4: Uh, Gates after after the the walk back. He also went on to to Kabul and had a press conference with Karzai. And made the same point. And, and the, the, the number of years that they were discussing as far as an American presence, it was absolutely will turn your hair white. Well, you know, in mean, 15 years. And, uh... Right, exactly. Another, on top of the past eight that we've already spent.
0: I mean, sort of in keeping with the theme of the conference, uh, President Ronald Reagan in his first inaugural address said, quote, if no one among us is capable of governing himself, then who among us has the capacity to govern someone else? unquote so given afghanistan given uh we're operating in a culture we barely understand we have to uh penetrate uh, linguistic culture and religious barriers uh why do so many republicans and conservatives believe that social engineering will work in afghanistan when they do not believe it'll work here in the united states
2: i asked uh one of the major conservative editorial page editors that same question four or five years ago uh Was that
1: me at the time, or? (laughs) They could have been
2: you. Could have been. (laughs) Um, I don't understand it. I, I just don't understand how you can both hold the position that you cannot manage one country. But you can manage
1: the whole world. Uh, to me, it's incomprehensible. I mean, this is taking us to a different conversation than mm-hmm. Afghanistan.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Bro- to the broader yeah, yeah, foreign mean, policy. Which, well,
1: I'll probably disagree with some folks. But.
0: Oh, well, go ahead. Well, uh, well, I
1: mean, no, no, I'm just be, because I think there's an alternative to being. I mean, there, there were no imperialists left anymore, no Teddy Roosevelt, who actually wanted empire. I think most of us who are more aggressive, who, who think we need to be engaged in the world, are empiricists. We, we think there may be factual situations where we protect our interests by being engaged in the world. I certainly am. I'm, I, I, I think that often we have to be engaged in the world. But then the, the test is, and that's where we get back to the question, is can we do it in any particular instance? If we can't do it, then it doesn't matter that theoretically we order. And I think ideologues, and we have a few neoconservative friends who who who, as a matter of principle, think we ought to... I mean, there's a famous Weekly Standard cover of, 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 in, in favor of reinstating colonies, American colonies. Uh, I think that was sort of being you know, out of a little bit. I don't think Billy really, Crystal really meant that. But, but there, there's, other than that wing that thinks that it's sort of American greatness requires us as part of our spirit to be out there dominating the world, I think most of us who would be seen as, as internationalists, as engagers, as I think of myself only do it because we think in a particular instance there's something that needs to be done that we're capable of doing, and then it's a factual discussion. I mean, Pat Buchanan and I have been arguing these foreign policy issues for 15 years, and I don't think there's an ideological difference between us, although we never agree on a single thing, because he always sees that America's interest is more likely to be guaranteed by a staying home, and I tend to see our interest likely to be increased by, and take Israel. I mean, if we want to get into that question. You know, is Israel... uh, uh, a burden, as General Petraeus is now arguing, that that, that Israel's refusal to surrender her sovereignty to, to the surrounding Arabs is is, uh, is undercutting our our troops' ability to fight in the Muslim world, which is an interesting proposition that Petraeus made, if the news reports are right. Or is our, or is Israel? For, for a lot of reasons, an ally worth protecting and and it's a factual question that second one is a factual question, either they are or they aren't. I think they are although I can conceive the argument that they're not but that 's the difference between an ideology of 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 greatness abroad and just trying to figure out the facts what helps and what doesn't
4: well, I think that maybe they're both ideological quests or both ideological answers that you're getting at if I would argue that Petraeus' recent remarks, which I believe have been confirmed in his own testimony before the Senate, I believe yesterday, uh, which essentially restated what had been reported, which was, if you haven't heard about it, he basically uh, was supposed to have sent staff officers to brief the Joint Chiefs Chairman, Mullen, etc., on the position of the, his Arab uh, leaders in his CENTCOM sphere, on the fact that the Arab leaders are very frustrated by Israeli intransigence and that this was undercutting American interests. We saw this amplified by Vice President Biden in Israel, reported to have said uh, with the housing crisis, uh, that the houses in Jerusalem were now endangering American troops in various theaters. So it becomes actually a very important part of this. I would argue that that is actually the Arabist way of looking at the world, the Islamic way of looking at the world, the Ummah-centric way of looking at the world, whereas... Conceiving of Israel as an ally, going to the other side of the aisle, would be the Western anti-jihad point of view. So I think they both fall within two ideologies. The question becomes, which one do we follow? And I I think that's kind of where we are. I think it's a a question that's never asked, because we do never discuss the Islamic nature. I mean, so far in our discussion of Afghanistan, we haven't really even touched on the Islamic nature of the culture which i believe is at root you know putting up obstacles to a lot of our attempts to impose western frameworks on the way they live and and govern themselves or not govern themselves Well, in what respects
0: do you feel that U.S. interventions, uh, both during throughout the Cold War and then post uh, after the end of the Cold War, now through the War on Terror, how much do you think that U.S. intervention abroad actually incites uh, violence against the United States? I remember we saw this during the one of the Republican primary debates in two thousand eight between Rudy Giuliani and Ron Paul, and uh, Rudy Giuliani all but demonized Ron Paul for even uh, uh, alleging that the United States was responsible for having the violent acts of. 9-11 9-11 attributed to it for its interventions abroad. Would you, would you agree with that notion? Where on the continuum would you sit? Would you sit more with Rudy Giuliani and more with Ron Paul and why?
4: Oh, well, I would certainly agree more with Rudy Giuliani. I don't believe that a nation defending itself or defending its allies or defending its way of life can be accused of incitement because the, the alternative way is essentially to submit. And so I think that that is a characterization um, that is uh, a tactical, con- you know, acts in any way as a tactic of uh, tamping down national self-interest. A like and English
1: national... intransigence, you know, outraging the Nazis and inflaming their active. Very you know,
4: much anger. so. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, a counterattack by the United States during World War II, you know, seriously upset the German populations or the Japanese. It's exactly the same thing. So I think it's incitement is, is, a, is a funny way to characterize... Um, But there can be
1: a causal relationship, even if it's not. Incitement is itself sort of an inflammatory word. But obviously, there can be a causal relationship. Our our alliance with Israel undoubtedly has exacerbated our problems in in the Middle East. That that, that is an undeniable fact. Now, it may be offset by other interests that we judge. I think that they are. But to, to ignore the fact that. As one tool that that recruiters use, the Israeli example in its occupation or its its governance of, of, of the West Bank uh, is a factor is true, but then you get to the more difficult question of whether it's in the nature of Islam to be expansionist and aggressive or not, and that becomes a very ideological and sensitive question. In other words, it was the period of militant Islam purely a state, like militant Christianity in, in the Middle Ages, or is something inherent in the religion, which means that you can't satisfy it. You have to submit, either, either submit or, or not. And that's a debate that is maybe a theological one, but it also has a very practical foreign policy
2: consequence. But it, but it is an empirical question.
4: Yeah, it's not. I don't and think it should be considered delicate. It's not at all. It's like empirical. It's we can't talk are about they it. or aren't
2: they uh, inherently aggressive? Uh, uh, you know, I agree with you that the the, the issue is the national interest and in how you define it, and it's not ideological. There are people the neoconservative on one side and the Uh, Wilsonian intervention on the other they're ideological the problem with conservatism as I understand it it goes back to the first statement the Sharon statement uh, of the modern conservative movement what's in the just interest of the United States it's the only justification for being involved in it but what the diff- what that is empirically can have enormously large different empirical. Mm-hmm. You talk about Buchanan. one of my best friends I gave him one of his first jobs is John Bolton. He says, "I'm always in national interest. it depends. but we never agree what's in the national interest, but at least it's the right criterion. And then we get down to deciding is it or isn't it in our national interest And we try to do it on as empirical, as possible grounds. Uh,
3: If you put your money where your mouth is, though, and you look at not just our words, and in this case, in Afghanistan, Tony raises a great point, we're not actually resourcing what is supposedly a vital national interest. But since the end of World War II, America's global leadership role has largely been unchanged by treaty or interest around the world by a president of either political party which by extension means our vital national security interests have been largely unchanged in the past 50, 60 years. If you look around the world beyond Iraq and Afghanistan, U.S. forces are engaged in over 80 countries today. That's remarkable. Now, that leads to things like we're the world's policemen, et cetera. But what I want to know is then if if we disagree on sort of what our role is in the world, then why isn't it changing? You know, no president of either party, including this one, is diminishing those commitments anywhere.
0: Right, no one ever questions uh, the sort of the presumption of U.S. primacy in the world. We're talking about the possible inherent expansionist uh, tendencies of Islam, but what about the inherent expanded tendencies of the United States? I mean, as you say, uh, not only do we have military operations in 80 different countries, we have U.S. forces stationed in 148 different countries and 11 territories. The said,
2: question is, they're there, but are they used? Now, look, Ronald Reagan committed U.S. forces less than any president of modern time other than Jimmy Carter. All right? That's not a mistake. I mean, it's 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 a, it, he has a sense of power should be absolutely the last choice. Remember uh, when he went to the arms control agreement, what happened in the conservative community? They called him a uh, 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 what a uh, uh, forgetting the word, but a sellout to the Soviet Union, uh, one of the leaders of the major conservative groups. Uh, Now, that's an ideological anti-communism as opposed to uh, an empirical one based on interest. The Sharon statement, by the way, again, says that anti-communism is, quote, at present the danger because it is a threat to these liberties of the United States. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it should be an empirical question. And having them stationed around the world, which we can question, is different than whether you're easily willing to use them or not. And Ronald Reagan was not. And he's my guide.
1: I, mean, I guess I got to, for me at least, I'm not sure that there is, I don't know what we mean by conservative foreign policy. <laughs> you, we have, on domestic policy, a, a spectrum between libertarianism and statism or authoritarianism. And I know, you know Reagan was on the libertarian end of that. On foreign policy, you have engagement and non-engagement. You have everyone from Wilson and Roosevelt, who were almost authoritarian, certainly statists, domestically, who were engagers. Reagan was an engager, not with any more military force than necessary. So you can be either place on those spectrums. You can be a liberal. You can be a statist at home. And believe in engaging and defending national interests as you see it, or you can be a Ron Paul, and you can have either combination. You can be libertarian and non engaged, libert- you know, libertarian and engaged, as Reagan was. You can be authoritarian and, and engaged, as Wilson or Roosevelt, or authoritarian and I guess not engaged, which may end up being the current president, perhaps. I don't know. But I don't see why it's conservative. To either be engaged or not, I don't. I don't know. I know what conservatism, is from my point of view, I don't see how it applies to foreign policy. As
3: part of that gets to the the definition of nation building you mm-hmm. referenced earlier, and 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 I would I wouldn't necessarily agree with social engineering as as part of that. But nation building alone, and the definition of nation building versus state building, I think gets to. I agree there is no conservative foreign policy, but particularly conservatives on this notion and, and mission of nation building. Uh, is largely uh, disagreement as well. There, there is no unified answer on what that is. Conservatives generally have thought in the past limited humanitarian nation-building missions led by the UN, for example, in Bosnia and Kosovo are, you know, limited and okay in certain scenarios, but these larger, broader-scale efforts... Uh, that may have been described. Yes, there's there's no answer, and no, none of us necessarily agree.
1: I think there may be
2: but an... I think on nation-building, I think there is an ideological... Uh, I mean, nation... Uh, the, the quote you gave from Reagan, I could give you one from his Guildhall speech that says pretty much the same thing. I yeah. mean, uh, he said, if we can't do it here, how can we possibly do it for somebody else? Uh, I think that is ideological. You, if you believe... In limited government, uh, 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 as, uh, as how you for us and anyone else who could possibly do it, you can't believe you can run somebody else. Well, let me ask
1: you: What would you think Reagan would have done, if with his, he, the frame of mind he had in in, in the 1980s, he'd had in 1945? Would he have been in favor of nation building in Japan and Germany? Roosevelt was, but then he believed in you know, social nation building inside the country, too. So,
2: Well, I mean,
1: I believe if
2: you get in a war, you have to occupy the country and you have to pacify it enough so you can get out safely, all right? Now, how far... You take Germany as a perfect example. We did the worst possible job in Germany you can imagine. We told them every wrong thing to do for their economy. And it wasn't until uh, Adenauer said, General Clay, I'm not going to pay any more attention to you. We're going to uh, take off the controls. We're going to... Uh, it wasn't until they, uh, the local people broke with our yeah. good intention yeah. idea Socialism. that uh, we built Germany. It wasn't us that do it. It was Adenauer and Erhard that built uh, Germany correctly. In Japan... The the uh, the uh, all of the leaders over there wanted us there. They wanted us there as a figurehead. We didn't have to go around the country uh, after the. Couple of months as long, and I. And oh, but MacArthur. MacArthur was a genius yeah, I mean, because he let the
1: emperor stay in control. But he, he, oh, he was but there. He, he did oh, guide. He did guide policy. He set up unions and, and the liberated women. And I mean, he—that well, was an active engagement.
4: Central, well, I think Japan is an interesting example to bring up. Uh, Japan was dec, uh, decimated completely; looked like a lunar landscape after uh, it was all over. President Bush often cited Japan and the success of rebuilding Japan for his program in Iraq. Now, the, the, a massive difference is one the decimation, but also this is very interesting, and I, don't, I didn't know this until I read this a couple of years ago. The United States essentially outlawed public Shintoism. Shintoism was the creed, of, the public creed of the Japanese people for some generations. Shintoism bears astonishing, striking uh, similarities to Islamic jihad uh, doctrine. And the State Department, the American State Department, in conjunction with the military, in conjunction with everyone, agreed that it was essential to take Shintoism out of the public sphere, out of the schools, out of the government, out of the public discussion, and say, yes, it can be your private ideology, you can light your candles and have your shrines, et cetera. No more public creed. That was enforced very Completely, and I think probably is one of the great uh, untold stories or little-known stories about that rebuilding of the country. President Bush was completely erroneous to compare any of those things to what went on in Iraq, which, of course, was not decimated, and indeed, we enshrined Islam in the Constitution that was written in 2004. Well, well correct me if Shinto I'm wrong, but I mean... it's
2: also a very different kind. It doesn't have its uh, all statement of principles. It's a general kind of agreed it, it, it upon... It
4: incited the aggression. It was a very much the warrior, aggressive, conquest kind uh, of But that,
2: that, that's it, different than Shintoism. Uh, no, no, that
4: is Shintoism. That, that was what the Americans no. believed was driving Japanese aggression. Well, excuse
0: me one so second. Yeah. I mean, I, I understand the whole problem with Islamic Jihad, but Islam did not attack the United States on 9-11. Al-Qaeda attacked the United States on 9-11. So unless we're prepared to occupy every single Muslim-majority country in the world, then, I mean, what, what are we talking about when in it comes, comes to interest and in uh, threats? In terms of nation building. In billing. terms of nation but building. But if we're talking about the Al-Qaeda network that has cells in countries, in many countries, I mean, they had cells in Germany, they had cells in the United States, they had cells in Pakistan, in Yemen, and in Somalia, uh, to some extent, I mean, are we sort of broadening our number of interests and the number of threats, and are we sort of losing sight when we sort of lump al-Qaeda together Uh, with Islam? Look, the problem
1: is, al-Qaeda is one aspect of of one part of Islam, and the part of Islam that we're concerned about, which is the radical violent expression. Whether that's innate in Islam or not is, is a debatable question if it it may be a force that we can't manage, that doesn't mean it's not a force that's threatening. I I mean, those are two different analytical points. You know, maybe we can't deal with it. But but if in fact we're we're facing that kind of hostility, you know, uh, around the world, maybe we we
3: can't match it.
1: But to say that it doesn't exist because we we may not have the resources to match it doesn't seem to me analytically valid.
3: Well, and to Tony's point earlier uh, as well about mission creep, which is, is fair, but it also is to your excellent point about the interest versus threats. In Afghanistan, for example, um, the U.S. military would say that there are five different and unique threats. Now, some, of course, share larger goals and objectives, namely Al Qaeda and and Taliban leadership, the big T, not the not the what I would call the little T, the, the daily paid, locally engaged who would put down their weapon or something else viable came along. But we also, have, of course, those two, which are are separate and distinct. But of course, the Haqqani network, and you also have the local insurgencies and ordinary crime and regular corruption. And there, so all of these in Afghanistan, it certainly isn't just one type of threat emanating from Al-Qaeda, although that's the primary
4: reason we were there. I would say that I think that in many ways the most militant expressions of jihad and, and, and um, terrorism are in many ways distractions that have successfully... Um, attracted all of our focus. That's what our focus is here today. I think the other aspect of Islam, and I think it, it's, it's it's a mistake, in other words, to just focus on Al-Qaeda as the sort of brand name or the brand uh, form, to me, the greater threat than um, actually these wars or getting on airplanes and possibly being blown up, the greater threat is the spread of Islamic law, which can happen quite peacefully through demographic uh, uh, Increases. We see it all over Europe, which is one of my great interests. Um, So I think that it is actually quite important to tie all these things together, not to get just tunnel vision on al-Qaeda or Taliban or name your Islamic group that we are fighting in Somalia and Yemen, however uh, many there are. The um, far greater threat to me, and what I actually see as extinguishing Western-style liberty, is the incursion of Islamic law, In the West. So when I I opened up with the statement discussing Afghanistan falling to the far side of my line of battle, my line of battle much more concerns um, rather than trying to impose a Western framework on the Islamic world, which is essentially what I think we're doing in Iraq, Afghanistan, and what next in in the other countries that seem to be on the list, uh, judging by General Petraeus' testimony, um, we are ignoring the incursions of Islamic law into the Western sphere.
1: I mean, you make a terribly important point because is it, for instance, in America's national interest that the concept of freedom of expression should still be cherished in Europe? I've got involved in the last couple of weeks in sort of a, a urinating contest <laughs> digitally in, in Europe because I had I, I had do <laughs> because, be, because I had yeah because I had said that that we should defend uh, whether I not, whether or not I would have driven a dri- a rude cartoon about Muhammad that we have, we have an obligation to defend the person's right to express it the Voltaire proposition right. and then I get a, a lot of discussion saying that in, in which very sensible western people who sort of come out of all the same value sets that we've all been educated in say no you need to free speech is nice but, but it, it, it's just if it's too threatening then we shouldn't exercise it now
4: Excitement. Yeah, and
1: and and if
4: that's so a, if that's pressure? a value that. know that...
2: about all the anti-Nazi laws in, in in Europe? Now, come on, do I mean? Yeah, I disagree with, with those right? too. But huh? I disagree with those. I disagree things. with, I mean, with but those. I uh, and, yeah. and look at the social pressures here against the uh, you know, go out and give a pro-Nazi speech here. All right, I mean, uh, I understand that, you know. Uh, Reaction, and I don't think people should do it. Now, having laws against it is a different kind of thing. Being prosecuted. And, 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 but people, it's I a think. serious kind of well, a, a statement to make, the same killed. as it
1: would be here. Very insightful. Uh, but but the, the broader question is does America have a national security interest in the cultural values of Europe? I mean, that's what in mean. this situation. It's not going to be solved by military, right. one way or the other, but I think that arguably we do. And, and well, a do. foreign policy ought to, in part, try to encourage those values of freedom, which which we think uh, we don't want to be the only island on the planet having, because it'll get extinguished here, probably, if the rest of the, the planet doesn't share the values, which well, is why Reagan, it's and it's as Dana was talking in the previous, saw that we have some kind of restrained duty to encourage freedom.
2: I think we do, uh, you know, in the John Quincy Adams, But, you know, if we really want to do something about it, what we really have to do is convince Europeans to have children, right? (laughs) I mean, it is not going to be a European uh, society uh, very long. You have a 1.2 reproduction rate. It is going to be Muslim someday.
4: Well, I I don't think it's a a baby race. I mean, I think that it makes a lot more sense rather than encouraging children is to understand that a demographic in favor of Sharia comes about through Islamic immigration.
0: And on that note, we're going to turn it to the audience for Q and A. Thank you so much. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Please uh, have your question in the form of a question. Please be brief, and you don't have to give your name and affiliation. But if you feel so inclined, please do so. Uh, We'll start with these two gentlemen in the front.
5: Howard Woldridge with uh, COPS, Citizens Opposing Prohibition. Quick question for Tony. When you say with, when they, we retreat from Afghanistan, it'll be like a recruiting poster for the, the Taliban al-Qaeda. Isn't it also true that when these troops are there and killing Muslims, that's also a recruiting tool for people to join al-Qaeda and the Taliban?
1: It's question of magnitudes. I agree with both oh, of them. Okay. Of course, Sorry. it's the magnitudes. But I think... Each individual act where we offend somebody because we've killed them it, it has that effect. The collective effect of the nation being driven out of a country, I think, is a pretty big one. I'm willing, un- regretfully, to accept it because I don't think we, we have much of a choice. But I, I recognize that in accepting it, we are that that is of a bigger magnitude of, of negativity. Of, for
0: us. In our
5: and, and a macro question for the for the uh, panel: uh, China seems to be doing quite well economically, with essentially zero troops in zero countries. That's
4: not true. They-
5: uh, nah. Roughly, roughly. We're, sending, we're spending huge amounts of money to maintain the American whatever it is. Uh, the question is going forward, no one here talked about cost. Uh, I just had a grandson. I'm worried about the fact that we're $12 trillion in the hole and going down fast. And one of the reasons is we are spending, what, 20 times more on military than the, or no. as much on military as the next 20 countries combined. A
1: couple of quick things. China is spending as much money as it can on defense as quickly as it can. It's going towards a blue nat- They're trying to copy... Our, our capacity, blue navy fleets uh, there's a huge arms race going on in, in Asia, so, so they think that having lots of arms is good now they 're getting richer and, and they may be able to afford. I agree with you ultimately, our industrial base, our economic capacity, will determine our, 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 our military capacity, which is why Germany lost two wars, although they were better troops, man for man than the english were but, but unfortunately they didn 't have the industrial base of the United States behind them. I
4: was. Well, I would say first that China is actually piggybacking on American troops being in places like Afghanistan and Iraq, where they are doing beautifully economically. I think they have the largest investment with the copper mine in Afghanistan, for example, that is going on and uh, benefiting from the American presence. Uh, on your first point, that was to Tony, but in terms of Americans killing Muslims being a recruiting poster, the Taliban, etc., kill far more Muslims than... Americans do. In fact, this was one of my, my problems with General Crystal's uh, theory because his idea that eliminating civilian casualties was our route to uh, being loved and, you know, for example, the more re- most recent UN figures on civilian casualties showed that at least 60% were anti-government forces in Afghanistan with 30% coming in with uh, American and Afghan uh, uh, inadvertent casualties. So it, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of a hoax. I
3: would never compare... Uh, you know apples it wouldn't be an apples to apples comparison for sort of chinese engagement militarily or otherwise around the world to ours because they're a regional power and we are a global power and we have global responsibilities and global interests but to to tony's point uh, what concerns me is that their level of disp- defense spending relative to ours as a percentage of their economy grossly outpaces ours and for a regional power and we're a global power you see the mismatch here what does that mean the the point to the for example, seeking a blue-water navy, which is true, that it would be, in fact, a globally engaged navy above, on, and below the seas. Um, so, if, again, if you're this regional power, you see that there is a disconnect in the public about what the ambitions here are and what they're actually telling us they're doing. Um, and and your other point, which I, am of course, am blanking on right now. Oh, what we're spending, uh, of course, on defense, which is one of my favorite topics. Uh, it's something, in fact, Chris Preble and I often debate, if he's still here in the room, uh, and uh, any co- country, including NATO countries, but China is a great example. And like I said, they far outpaced the U.S. As, as relative to what we are doing. And you know, our defense spending is at a historic low. Our economy was much smaller in World War One and World War Two, and we were spending half of our entire economic output on our military engagement. Today, it's about four or five percent, if you include Iraq and Afghanistan. But your point on deficit spending in the war is is a fair one, and it is not. It is. It's bad governance. And this, this again, is both parties, both presidents. Now, this past year, Congress is passing war funding as part of the regular congressional budget process. But up till this point, we're just printing money to pay for it. And, uh, you know, the answer is good governance. You either cut other spending or you reduce other programs. You figure out a way to pay for it. That, that really is the reasonable and responsible thing to you do. You know, there's,
1: there's a difference between global, being a global power and being a legitimate power. It, America has had an interest. In, in, in the world order as it roughly is as England had an interest in the world order as it roughly is China maybe like Napoleon England had an interest in, in in stopping a revolutionary change in the order of, of of the world they fought a horrible war against Napoleon then had a peaceful prosperous century after that we saw Soviet communism as a revolutionary global force that was intimidating the world order that we were thriving in so we needed to contain it and eventually end it so the question is, China, if it becomes a global force, but it shares an interest in in maintaining the the order, is not a threat to us. If it, if it's a revolutionary global force, then it becomes a threat. We don't know which one it's going to be, and they probably don't know.
0: Second gentleman, right there.
2: Yes, I'm Russell King. I'd like.
5: I'm um, wondering if you knew anything about just war doctrine and unrestricted warfare and how they uh, how they clash here, because it seems that. Uh, just warfare is moral doctrine as opposed to a strategy. And unrestricted warfare is just the way you get advantage.
2: And I'm wondering how they they would clash in Afghanistan. If you could you discuss that tactically as well as strategically.
1: I mean, a little bit. I I I mean, look, this is Christian doctrine from from the pre-Reformation period primarily. I, I, this is a cynical view. I, I, I think the just war doctrine was a set of excuses for justifying the wars that the, the Christian kings needed to fight at the time. But that's just my view. I mean, look, because we that violate really them all is, the time. I uh, mean, look what we get in Dresden. I mean, we, we go do terror bomb because we needed to do it, and we justify it after the fact. Uh,
2: yeah, if but the just war theory was to stop that uh, and yeah. to be very— See how well it worked. Uh, I'll be— Hard and feathered for this, but uh, the theory basically held until the American Civil War, uh, and General Sherman broke the the, the constraints of were. The reason Lincoln was complaining about McClellan is McClellan tried to follow the rules of war and didn't go after civilians. And, unfortunately, we sent that to the First World War, where they learned from how effective uh, we were in the Civil War. And it went to the Second World War, and it's gone worldwide. Uh, so there is the doctrine. It is not would followed anymore. Th- would you
1: say the Thirty Years' War followed the doctrine of just war? Well, third, a third of, of, in, of in, Europe in, was slaughtered. In, on in,
2: well, in terms of not civilians,
1: yes. All right. whole, villi- whole, whole villages were killed if they were either Protestant or Catholic, depending on... And who was the aggressor? I mean, I, I don't. I don't think just war principles were were honored in the Thirty Years'
2: War. Well, they oh, well, they were more honored than they have been since. I'll leave that uh, to
0: yeah, history. Looks, <laughs> <laughs> um, the gentleman in the purple shirt.
6: Um, just a comment and then a question. Uh, Donald, I totally disagree with you when you say that Afghanistan cannot be uh, centrally governed. As an Afghan, I think you and I understand the history of Afghanistan completely different. Uh, I don't know if we know the history of Afghanistan before 1979, where, uh, what kind of society it was and what kind of culture it had and, and what kind of place it was. Uh, are we judging it basically on what we have right now, a crippled government and a crippled, uh, basically, society? Are we judging uh, Afghanistan based on this? And And, and also... We, we, we talked about the Afghans are born to fight. I think Afghans are born to defend themselves. Afghanistan has turned uh, to a battleground uh, uh, for a proxy war between the powers of, in that region, between Iran and the United States, and the, between India and Pakistan. How can we defend the Afghan people from this proxy war? Let's look at it in that way.
2: Well, let's have America get out and you guys do it. If you can do it, okay. do it.
0: Um, I, it, I, there has been a history uh, of central governance in Afghanistan. I think the only problem is that it wasn't really foreign imposed. It was mostly built from the ground up and had the legitimacy of the people. I think that'd be the the biggest discrepancy. Um, sorry, the lady in the red shirt, in the blazer.
6: I got a, a comment and a part question. My comment was: I think a lot of the debate has been on kind of um, categorizing Al Qaeda in the war, like you know, against Western values, whereas recently in uh, evidence like there's a lot of suicide bombings that have happened in Pakistan and so it's not just they're out against the West there's a lot of local suffering as well and I guess my part question would be if any f- um, members of the panel can shed on th- light on the fact that a lot of recruitment of um, military in Islam is not based really on religion I guess it gets brainwashed but a lot of it is on ethnic problems it's on economic impoverishment and it's also resistance against the very regimes and dictators the U.S. and the West have been supporting. Thank you.
1: Well, 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 I mean, sure. I I, I mean, that's all true. The the tribal identification and and economic forces are uh, are factors. Religion is another one. And I agree that if America and the West didn't exist, you'd still be seeing a lot of of fighting and and the Muslim Brotherhood came into existence to to beat their, their own government, not to not the United States. I mean, that would, so obviously. So, so, yeah, there's a lot of truth to what you say, but it doesn't mean that there's not also a religious component, and particularly compared with the West. And, and, and there is, I think, uh, we're seeing, and I spent some time in Europe, I think you're seeing on the streets on a daily basis a clash of cultures, at least, if not of civilizations.
3: To your point, also, I, I would take it slightly differently, though I agree with you, because there are so many other reasons for the appeal. Of, of this ideology or, or joining this insurgency or that network. I won't just be exclusive to one. Um, it's why the Taliban, for example, couldn't be defeated in Afghanistan through military means alone. And it's, in a, it's part of the reason why we're even having a debate why there is probably such a long-term presence that's required in the country. Because then you have to bring in this three-legged stool concept, security, governance, and development. And if they're not all in operating at once, the, the entire thing can collapse. And it's for these long-term efforts so that if you, if you have achieved security and Afghans can defend themselves, then these types of things become less appealing to local civilians as in the long run so you don't have to return. Let me make
1: another point. Because I think the, a good analogy to the current... Situation that Islam is in is, is the European Thirty Years' War, which was both between Protestants and Catholics, between princes for princely and dynastic reasons. It was economic. It was a whole mix of, of motives. Sometimes you'd have a, 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 a Catholic prince fighting with the Protestants because he had a province he wanted. So it gets all mixed together, whether it's Christians getting it all mixed together or other peoples getting it all mixed together. It is in the nature of, of, of people to, to mix up all those different identifications and motivations as we do our natural fighting and that's
2: exactly why it's impossible to try to run that from washington all right it's unbelievably complicated unbelievably complicated and we don't understand it i don't know enough about afghanistan i've been to iraq but i don't know enough about it how the heck can we possibly tell you how to run it it's insane
4: I heard your friend John Bolton once say that we are very bad at micromanaging these situations. But I think there's another point that, yes, of course, as Tony says, the motivations are an undecipherable blend and mix of, you know, they also come down to personal uh, family stories and everything else. But I think there's something to consider in terms of not wanting to cancel out this notion of clash only because um, it's very interesting poll data was done a couple of times uh, by the uh, uh, worldopinion.org once re- as recently as last year and then a couple of years back of populations in Pakistan, uh, Jordan, Egypt, Indonesia and the uh, the the preponderance of of identification with Islamic law with a desire for a world caliphate was striking. You had majorities in most of those countries uh, all of except for Indonesia, you had strong majorities in the first three, and uh, I think that that is why we end up with this notion of a rejection of Western values, because there well, is... Let,
1: let, let me point... You know, the polling data, and I've looked at this polling, gives an example of where we could engage without using troops. Because I don't know if there was that poll, but it was a poll of, of a series of different Muslim countries, Pakistan, Morocco, Turkey, I forget all of them. And, and overwhelmingly, at 80 and 90% levels, the people there thought that America's policy was to conquer... Muslim countries, to divide them and, and, and to convert them to Christianity. Right. Now, if I were a Muslim father in mm-hmm. Pakistan and thought that about America, I probably would encourage my sons to fight. If we could, it's a horribly difficult challenge, but if we could in fact just inform the publics of, uh, of the Muslim world that the truth, which is we don't want to... Con- I mean, there may be individual Christians who want to convert anybody, but as a nation we 're not out we, we don 't want to convert muslims we don 't want to conquer and divide we 'd rather be left alone and just be able to buy the oil uh, but but that misinformation is a, a great force uh, of hostility, and it 's a opportunity to engage, if we were capable of it, without bayonets and bombs.
4: Well, That's
2: true, the, but the me. fact that we've got an enormous army in two Muslim
4: well,
1: countries makes that argument very difficult. But, b- but, but it doesn't problems. contradict yeah. the argument. It doesn't contradict the no, truth it. doesn't. Of it. it should be done. And, and, and it you. could be done. Maybe.
4: Yeah, there's a very important point here. I think you raised something extremely important, which is if you are bringing to an Islamic culture female equality, equality before the law for non-Muslims freedom of conscience, freedom of speech, all of these things that we think are apple pie, that is an attack on the basis of of Islamic society. Uh, So how does the maybe less than educated person or maybe educated person, it doesn't really matter, interpret that as anything benign? It is an attack on essential values of the Islamic world. And I don't think we've ever come to grips with that. Certainly our leadership hasn't. And I think that that is a very important point. How could they interpret it well, differently? We, I, mean, I, I give don't know. One example. It is an attack.
2: That's so true. One example. When I was in uh, Iraq, uh, they took us around, of course, where the, uh, they want to show us Western-type things. Uh, there were two women on the group with me. They took us into this women's uh, uh, forum group, you know, uh, modeled on Western groups there, to go in and talk to them. And we were uh, accompanied by a female uh, major, all right? Uh, um, they absolutely shunned her. Absolutely. They would not go near her. Uh, when we sat down in the room, everyone else was kind of, around her, nobody. Nobody. Now, I just read in a paper, we're going to take that concept and Bring it to Afghanistan, too, which is a <laughs> yeah. side point. But my point is the difference in terms of the social setting there. The women
1: themselves didn't want to deal with this Western-type well, woman. Th- uh, this race is important. Some, I think Americans tend to give a misimpression of our intentions because we assume that our values are universal values. And therefore, we assume that we're just helping people be their best selves by taking our values. And that sort of looks like cultural domination from from the other side. And we're not even aware of it when we're often usually we're doing the old ugly American concept writ large. And and, and that's it's, it's a failure of us to communicate our genuine intentions. And, and the world misunderstands us to both sides' detriment.
0: I've always said that international relations is much like physics. You know, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So uh, this gentleman in the front with the glasses.
7: I want to uh, go back to how we got into Afghanistan post-9-11. Uh, Tony Blankley, you said that initially the war was a punitive action. It seems to me it was a bit more than that. Punitive would have been like Clinton uh, lobbing a few missiles. No,
1: no, no. Well, but, I meant I Punitive. You know, get everybody, the government did it and shoot them all. That's, you
7: know, Oh, okay. Well, So that's regime change in, in that... Just, just get the guys who got us. Okay, but, but once we're in there, my question is, is there a moral alternative to nation-building if you replace the regime? Can we, for example, destroy and leave? And if we can't, then isn't the last eight years what inevitably happened if we believe that we have a moral obligation once we destroy something to replace it with something?
1: But in the 19th century and earlier, we had, there were, not we, but nations had punitive incursions. One side did something, you punished them for it, and, and you left. And, and, and I don't know that that's less moral than staying and making a hash of things.
2: Listen, I think the perfect example is Iraq. Uh, the first time. What did George H.W. Bush do? He went in, wiped them out, uh, weakened them, got out. All right? Now, we we kept, we, it took us a while to do the air reconnaissance to try to keep it under control. And we kind of screwed that up too, but the, you always are going to try to do that in micromanaging. But to me, that was the right solution. I mean, you can't create, you try to get it back to some sense of normalcy but not socially it's economically uh, and humanitarian in terms of taking care of people you can't change the basic social and political then get out George H.W. Bush and I said this before it's not second looking at it did the right thing uh, that was the way to handle it it is a punitive That he t- exactly took the punitive uh, War concept uh, against the dam the first time.
3: I would just say it's partly a moral responsibility, as you outlined, but it's, I think it's really more just practical because if you don't, you can cut off the head of the snake and it still lives and it can <coughs> cause major problems for you. So if you don't address these other endemic, systemic, long term problems, then you simply would return greater number later and why would we do that that wouldn't be in our best interest we're already there but
2: we didn't have to go in that was certainly a war of choice going in there the second time we had it basically under control with the 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 the, the Kurds were separate it was a separate nation for all intents the no-fly zone they
1: couldn't go up they were contained oh, wait, wait a second as I recall it analytically I thought, as we know in in retrospect, that George Herbert Walker expected uh, Saddam to fall of his own internal political weakness after we had driven him out of Kuwait. So, analytically, I don't think the president then expected him to stand and, and go back stronger than ever.
2: Yeah, but he so, didn't grow back stronger than ever. It's clear we know he didn't. Well, strong enough to... I mean, to, the, the army was a, a shell. They, they had no
1: weapons of mass destruction. I well, mean... No, none, nonetheless, it, w- I, it was, I think... Bush's expectation, if not his intent, that that after he had pu- driven them back that Saddam would fall into something I else. I don't be, see I that think that's, in the, in the I documents. It. They, they no.
2: expected him to be weakened, which he was enormously weakened.
0: Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, yeah, let's go to the back. Uh, the two gentlemen, the first gentleman with the white and the other gentleman with the looks-like leather jacket. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, can't hear you.
8: So to follow up on the point about um, the first Gulf War and why, in your opinion, why, in your opinion, that was the right way to go, punitive action against a state actor, the problem that it seems now is that the challenges that we face are all non-state actors, right? And the way to actually solve a problem for the long term is to create a structure and a society that won't actually give comfort to our enemies, right? So, Mr. Blakeney's point about, oh, we should have had a punitive action against Afghanistan to get the people who got us. Well, the Taliban weren't actually the people who attacked us. It was Al Qaeda, and Al Qaeda was a oh. guest to the Taliban, right? Well, well, so, you well, had I'm to right. get rid of the Taliban and change the structure that allowed them to have some place to have a safe haven. And it's true that there are lots of places like that in the world now Somalia, well, let's also get the Yemen. Same So it's so you you almost it's almost as if we've created a situation in which our only option is nation building. Like there is there is no longer a situation in which you're going to be able to have a punitive action in which you don't actually leave a structure better than the way you had it before or else they just come back. So uh, it it doesn't it doesn't seem like it's seems like it's a new it's a new world order in terms of thinking about disorder.
0: And let's get the other question as well with that.
6: I wanted to go back to the uh, point that uh, Dr. Devine had raised. Uh, I'm Daniel McCarthy, the American Conservative, by the way, uh, which is that you have a number of violations of free speech and other kinds of civil liberties uh, in Europe already. And, in fact, the gateway through which Islamic ideology seems to be entering Europe is the ideology of political correctness. And that, in fact, uh, was partly instilled by the United States after... The Second World War, when we reconstructed Europe, uh, we had people from the Frankfurt School and other uh, such uh, you know, far left anti Western ideologies of our own uh, that were uh, basically funded by the United States right after World War II to help reconstruct and denazify Europe. So, in fact, it seems to me that uh, while we've heard a lot of talk about uh, the Islamic Caliphate and its uh, goals to transform the world, well, we've also had within uh, the United States, within the West generally, a militant left which was actually the precursor to this jihadism, and which has tried to create, in fact, a uh, social democratic caliphate.
0: Okay, so um, New World Order of Nation Building, first question, and uh, the militant left and the problem of ideologies more generally.
1: Uh, Just briefly. Mm -hmm. uh, Obviously, there are are forces other than states, state actors, that are a problem. But there are also state actors that are empowering them, But we're not prepared to deal with them. Saudi Arabia obviously funds a tremendous amount of instruction that, that results in young men being adversely disposed towards us. And we're not, because of the oil and other reasons, prepared to deal with them. But the fact is that there are states that are empowering those forces. And I don't know that we can ever completely extinguish it, but it's a little bit, I don't like the, the analogy that well but the piracy uh that the british eventually resolved you know that you make it harder and harder give them fewer and fewer sanctuaries and maybe you 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 reduce it down to a tolerable level uh as far as cutting off the head i I mean i think that the talibans giving sukkah to al-qaeda while they trained their attackers was sufficient to say that they were complicit uh and and the Taliban, in the previous discussion correctly, they, they were not uh, that popular amongst the, the Afghanis. They were not the Mujahideen. They were created by, by, by Saudi Arabia and Pakistan. They were their fanatics, uh, created in the aftermath of our departure from Afghanistan last time. So I think that left to their own devices, the Afghans over the centuries have shown themselves to, to not be... Uh, uh, it is simply a, a fanatical people, but a fine people who govern themselves in their own land quite adequately.
4: I would, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I was going
3: to say just to the first question only. I, uh, it's a fair point that uh, many of the threats that the U.S. faces and chooses to address or not are, are those posed by nation states. And then there's that whole other set that also knows no borders, but it's not necessarily uh, a, a person. So it's cyber security, for example, and uh, information and technology, globalization, how, good or bad. Uh, but on the nation-state piece, you know, I actually agree with uh, Michael Hanlon from Brookings. He wrote in Monday's Washington Post, you know, the stabilization and reconstruction, some call that nation-building, the U.S. policy is, is, is stabilization and reconstruction after you remove a regime, this long-term rebuilding. For better or worse, it is U.S. policy.
0: Stabilization reconstruction versus nation building, that's just a distinction without a difference, though, right? I mean, we're talking and about strengthening the. Yeah, yes. okay, okay,
2: exactly. Oh, well, why don't we do that for the U.S.?
1: <laughs> you know, just
0: kind of
2: go in and straighten
1: everything <laughs> out. None of
0: the you, know, go- you know, we're going to
2: have a great because country in, that way. Because
1: in the von Hayek Center, it's none of the government's <laughs> damn business. Right.
0: I mean, there are parts of, uh, I'm sure, <laughs> I Detroit. Mean, that that would is like to like the be point there,
2: point. too. Right. I mean, uh, no, 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 I couldn't no, disagree with you more. The problem, you can't. Solve any problem forever. Anything. You you mentioned one that was solved: piracy. You're, you're reading about what's going on there. That's
1: because the Royal Navy no longer rules no, the waves. I,
2: I,
8: I, <laughs> okay. When we did, no, by you George.
2: never. You never solve any problems forever. Bush went in. Uh, first, Bush went in Iraq. He solved the problem. I can. Cons- I think we had it under control. Uh, uh, there, But if we didn't, listen, I'm a fragmented. Go in and knock them over again. You know what the right solution was the second time? Line up the top 50 bathes, kill the f- top 49, tell the 50th one, no messing around with your neighbor and no mass destruction uh, or death. I said, okay, that sounds like a pretty good idea. Leave them in there.
4: Diana, Diana, Cynical, Diana, yes. I, I wanted to say one thing. I just wanted to uh, point, add one thing to the non-state actor, state actor notion, which is, uh, again, the, um, the, the organization of the Islamic Conference is the largest international organization body in, in the world, aside from the United Nations. It is a collective designed to advance Sharia in the world. It, it is a collective of the 57 Islamic nations. The members are kings, dictators, foreign ministers. They move these things forward, and I, I think that, you know again, they should, this should not be ignored as we focus on the wars. And then on the uh, notion of uh, the Frankfurt School and so on, it, certainly denazification in Germany, this is very true. I think you also have to understand there's great receptivity in Europe to these ideas, particularly due to the success of communism. Um, which, yes, the Cold War is over, but um, we certainly see the ideology live on. We have many communists in power again in Europe. We have socialism. We have, you know, they call the EU the E-U-S-S-R for a reason. So I think that, you know, this is a twin, a tag-team problem in terms of the left ideology. The lady right there in the back. Thank
9: you. Uh, Oh, thank you. Um, If we go in here and put everybody out who we don't like, uh, as you suggested... I think one of the important issues that has been discussed, but perhaps overlooked when we do go into other countries, is the cultural, tribal, religious issues that are different from ours, or the same differences we have in this country. So as we're at war in Afghanistan and and Iraq and Iran, do we go, what about the Middle East? I know, Mr. Blanke, you touched on that, but do we say to Israel and, and and Palestine, just go at it, get over it, we're pulling out, Uh, And take a stand and let the nations just do it themselves without any American support. Because I really think we do not understand the cultural, tribal cultural issues that are involved in those countries as compared to ours the
1: fact that we don't know everything doesn't mean we don't know anything the fact that we can't get everything accomplished doesn't mean we can't do some things that are useful to us and that's why i said at the beginning of our conversation we should be empiricists we should be practical if we can if there's a threat to us that we can neutralize for 10 years that's a good thing to do if we can't, then we, we shouldn't try. And the fact that we're not going to be able to make imperfect man in, into, into a perfect society, I understand that. But powerful nations have been able to shape the world in a manner useful to, to them for a long time. And, and when it's in our interest, we should do it. I mean, it's not an ideological point. It's just a practical one. Some waving hands at the back. Okay,
0: we'll just get those uh, last two. We're actually running a a little bit out of time. Uh, So the gentleman in the back with the checkered shirt, and the gentleman who's waving his hand back and forth. Checkered career. Right.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, I'm David Hoffman. I sometimes write for Sojourners magazine, and this is simply a reply, brief reply to the gentleman who spoke earlier. The delusion of a so-called the the quest for a so-called social democratic. A caliphate, that is the most tendentious, preposterous piece of poppycock I've ever heard. Okay.
7: I don't know. Who, who said... Oh. It
0: was not. <laughs> yeah, take him out,
7: line them up. Okay. Uh, oh. uh, just a brief comment. The worst part with nation building is that you never know where to start and when you have a nation. It's it's very hard to... Say. But you also know, for a fact, that if you start rebuilding to six, seven, eight million. Oil production barrels a day in Iraq, and you leave that fiftieth guy, there, he's going to turn into something with that power. So, so there are some basic things that you can any without looking around at a culture. There's some basic things that you can look into in a country and see this is a source of problem. Let me be very small. Just let me get rid of this accumulation of wealth, centralized wealth that brings bad things. So I think that should be a, uh, you should be able to, to focus at least on what some things.
3: I think um, centralizing the oil well. That even if you killed 49 of the 50 guys, you're not eliminating the larger problem because of the, the, well, the potential there to capitalize on the wealth of oil or any other.
2: Well, I don't say you, you remove the problem, all right? I said all you got two things. Don't go across your borders and don 't have any uh, 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 weapons of mass destruction that may threaten us that 's all I ask you do what else that 's your problem.
4: Does anyone have any last comments? I would just make one comment, which is a little bit related to that, which is something we haven 't discussed, which is our oil dependence on the Middle Eastern countries. Um, th- to me, if, if I were going to devise a conservative foreign policy, my first point of interest would be. Developing our energy resources and cutting down, cutting off, hopefully eventually, that uh, very corroding and I think corrupting um, need to appease and to play to uh, the Arab world, which I think we're seeing you know, in, in General Petraeus' testimony and things like that. I think it's a big factor well, that we would like to eliminate. Well, oil is a global commodity, so I think that
0: our oil dependence doesn't require dependence on these autocratic regimes in the Middle East and Persian Gulf. But with that, uh, thank you everyone on the panel for a lively discussion, and thank you everyone for attending. Please, um, if you need to use the restroom, do, do so quickly. Uh, we'll be ready for our keynote speaker in about five minutes.